As we open up God's Word, let me just pray for us one more time. Father, would you reveal wonderful things to us from your law? Would you teach us and instruct us? Would you show us the glories of Christ? Give us an excitement for our Savior and even to see him for the first time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We all know the experience of unmet expectations. Unmet expectations, unrealistic expectations. Maybe sometimes it's in small things. It might be something like a movie. A friend told you about a great movie. You were so excited to go watch it. They said it was transformative, it was exciting. And you go and watch it and you realize, I had no idea what was going on. I didn't, for two hours, I sat there confused and misunderstanding what was going on. Maybe it's a, a restaurant or a meal. Someone's commended this great restaurant. You're excited to go. You go with a full heart of excitement about this new experience you're going to have with foods you've never tasted. And you go and it's nothing like you've expected. It's distasteful. You don't want to be there. It's an unrealistic expectation. Sometimes it's small things like that. And other times, it might be weighty things, serious things, things like your career. You came maybe to the UAE with high expectations of a transformed life and a, a straight progress up, and it just hasn't been that way. It's been met with difficulties and slow progress and setbacks. These are part of the unrealistic expectations of life. And then maybe it's something like as serious as a marriage. This relationship you so longed for and hoped for has now been filled with all kinds of troubles. You find that you've actually married a sinner. And you find that you've acted as a sinner in this relationship. And all the glories and hopes of marriage have now been met with the realities of some real expectations. Paul Tripp wrote uh, a well-known book called What Did You Expect? A book on marriage about unrealistic expectations in marriage. And he says this line, unrealistic expectations always lead to disappointment. Whether it's in movies or in food or in your career or even in something as weighty as marriage, unrealistic expectations lead to disappointment. This morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. And here we see Jesus confronting his disciples' wrong expectations. His disciples have come to expect a king and a kingdom. And Jesus is instead preparing them for a cross. And if you're a believer in Christ this morning, we need these kinds of reminders as well. As Christians today, we're prone to unrealistic expectations about God's plan for our life, about our path of Christian discipleship. So this morning, we need to have our perspectives reset by Christ so that we can be prepared for the path of discipleship that He has made for us. So please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 31. <clears throat> My goal is we look at this passage simply to convince you that following Christ is costly and following Christ is worth it. Following Christ is costly and following Christ is worth it. Let me read for us Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. <clears throat> and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. 
and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. <clears throat> Here's the main point that Jesus is aiming to teach his disciples in this passage. And so this is really the main point of the rest of the message. Following a crucified Savior means bearing a cross-bearing life. Following a crucified Savior means following Him in a cross-bearing life. And it's worth it. So we'll look at three parts of the message this morning. First, the King's cross. Next, our cross. And then counting the cost rightly. So the King's cross our cross, and counting the cost rightly. Firstly, the king's cross. Do you see Peter's expectations at the beginning of this passage? Just before this is really a pinnacle of the whole book of Mark. Jesus had been doing miracles. Jesus has been teaching. People have been excitedly coming to him, but they've been asking this question, who is this guy? Who is this man? And Jesus now turns to his disciples in Mark chapter 8 and says, who do the people say that I am? And they say, some say a prophet, some say a teacher. And Jesus then turns to his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? And really a highlight of the whole book of Mark, Peter says, you are the Christ. Peter has rightly identified who Jesus is. He's not simply a prophet, he's not simply a teacher, he's not simply a miracle worker. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the promised king of God's people has come in the flesh Jesus is here, and he is the Messiah, the Christ. Peter knows who Jesus is. And, Pe and Jesus identifies himself in another unique way in our passage. Do you see in verse 31, he began to teach them, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. You see that phrase, the Son of Man. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. In fact, this is the most common way that Jesus refers to himself throughout the Gospels. And when Jesus uses this title, Peter knows that he's not merely speaking of a human. He's not saying, I'm the son of a human. Peter knows he's referring, he's alluding to a specific text in the Old Testament. Specifically, it's Daniel chapter 7. Let's go and read that. If you turn your Bibles, or you can just listen to me, but from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is what Jesus is speaking about when he refers to himself as the Son of Man. So in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel's given this vision. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see that? This Son of Man is not simply a son of a human. This is one endued with glory and dominion and power and authority over all peoples, that all peoples might come to Him and worship Him. So when Jesus refers to Himself as the Son of Man, He's saying, I am this one that the prophet Daniel spoke about. And Peter knows it. And the disciples know it because they know their Old Testament. So this phrase refers to Jesus' kingship. And that's why Jesus has already referred to himself twice in Mark's gospel as the Son of Man. One day in Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals the paralytic. And he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He heals the paralytic. He's showing his ability to heal his body. But what's his point? Is that you might know that the Son of Man has the ability to, heal, to forgive sins. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Another time in Mark chapter 2, disciples are plucking grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees come and confront them. And Jesus says, the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, Jesus is referring to himself as Lord of the Sabbath. This Son of Man has authority over nations and kingdoms, and authority to forgive sins, the right authority to interpret God's law. And Peter just referred to him, he knows that he's the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. So you can see Peter's high expectations. I found the Messiah. This is the Son of Man with all authority and dominion. So where is the story going to go from here? Jesus, it's going to go to Jerusalem And when you get to Jerusalem, everyone's going to recognize who you are. Parades will come. Celebrations will come. The Pharisees who know the law, they'll come. They'll all come and bow before the king of Israel is now here. That's what's going to happen. We'll call the reporters. The media will capture your miracles. All of Israel will come out. They will flock to you and bow to the king. They will crown you with a a crown. We're on our way to Jerusalem, and we're on our way to victory, to a throne, to a kingdom. But you see, Peter's expectations were unrealistic. Peter's expectations were misguided. Peter thought Jesus was going to Jerusalem to obtain a crown of a king, but instead he was going to obtain a crown of thorns. And so Jesus wanted his disciples, and he wants you and he wants me, to have a right expectation about his life and his ministry. We all want to be victors, but no one wants a cross. And Jesus teaches his disciples that victory would come through the cross. So Jesus calls his disciples together to tell them what to expect. Do you see that? What he tells them? He says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, and he said this plainly. Jesus was preparing his disciples to endure what was coming ahead. Very soon he would face suffering, rejection, torture, shame, and be killed. All before he is resurrected. You can understand then why Peter is so confused. He knows he's the Messiah. He knows he's the Son of Man. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to experience suffering and shame and loss and death. And so Peter rebukes the king. 
Peter actually confronts Jesus and says, no, it's not going to be like that, Jesus. We're going to a throne. And so Jesus then corrects Peter and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Peter's thinking is worldly. Peter's thinking is fleshly. Peter's, Peter's thinking is not from God. It's from the flesh. Martin Luther was one of the great Protestant reformers from Germany, and he contrasted two ways of doing theology or two ways of thinking about the Christian life. One, a theology of glory, and the other is the theology of the cross. We might say Peter's thinking was the the path of glory, that following after God would mean straight to glory. And Jesus is confronting him and says, no, the path goes through the cross. The path of glory expects that God's plans will come with constant success. God's people will have all the power, will have all the influence, will have all the victory, win all the battles. The kingdom of God will be one unbroken victory march. But Jesus says, the path of glory is worldly thinking, even the thinking of Satan himself. And so he says, there's a path that goes through the cross. The Bible says, God's strength is made perfect in weakness. The world thinks power is obtained by power. Influence is obtained by a great crowd. Victory is obtained by strength of the army. But the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. It's an unexpected kingdom. Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Jesus says, it's better to give than to receive. Jesus says, it's not the strong army that will inherit the earth, but the meek. They will inherit the earth. And so the victory of God over sin and death and Satan would be achieved through the death on a cross. Peter had eyes to see that Jesus was the Christ. He had eyes to understand that he's the Son of Man. But he did not yet understand that the Christ would be a suffering servant. And so the Bible says that this principle can still be a stumbling block for people today. So Peter In his writing to the Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 through 24, he says, For the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's a power that looks to the world like weakness. It's a wisdom that looks to the world like foolishness. Non-Christian friend, I hope you've not stumbled over this cross. I hope you've not rejected it because it doesn't meet your expectations of power and glory and victory. You might think, if someone, if I would follow after anyone, if I'd follow after any master, let it be someone who is strong, let it be someone who is mighty, Let it be someone who doesn't appear weak. I have a friend in Dubai who relayed to me a conversation he had with his Muslim friend who this Muslim friend objected to the cross because he said, it's so shameful. It's so weak. How could a true God accept suffering? How could true God accept this kind of mistreatment? If he really had power, wouldn't he use it to protect himself, to keep himself from any kind of shame and punishment and dishonor? My friend Daniel gave a great reply. He said, no, the cross is not finally about shame and defeat. 
It does go through shame. It does go through defeat, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there because three days later, he was raised again. That's exactly what Jesus said. You see, the, suf- the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. The cross was not the end of the story. So the cross is not a point of shame and loss because ultimately it's the path of victory. It's how Jesus accomplished the salvation for all those who would trust in him. Jesus was vindicated because he was raised from the dead. Even more than that, he's exalted now. Aji started the morning with a call to worship that reminds us of how nations and peoples will come and praise him for all time because of this cross. It's because of his self-sacrifice on the cross that Jesus is now praised in millions of gatherings around the world on a Sunday morning like this, in places all over on every continent and almost every country. People are gathering to exalt and sing his praises. It doesn't, the cross didn't result ultimately in shame and loss. It is the center of our exaltation of our king. It's the center of our praise and our worship. Jesus knew that his kingdom would not be threatened by the cross, but he would be forever glorified because of the cross. Because on the cross, he gave himself, he sacrificed himself, accepting the penalty of God against sin so that all those who would trust in him would have their sins counted to him, paid for by his sacrifice, so that we could be counted free, so that we could be counted righteous, so that we could be counted forgiven. Non-Christian friend, I hope you've not misjudge the cross it is not ultimately a place of shame and loss it is the place that christians put their great hope it is the hope of our salvation is this cross where ultimately our savior was killed but resurrected and vindicated and we glory and worship him now because the cross was not the last word fellow christian as we've sung today and probably you sing every week We remember that the cross is no point of shame for us. Do not be ashamed to honor the cross, to lift up the cross, to speak about the cross to your coworkers and to your family. The sacrifices of bulls and goats could never atone for sins. Our good deeds could never atone for our sins. But God came down to make a glorious rescue. Do not turn away from this cross. Do not hide from this cross dwell and meditate on the cross of our savior on the cross he displayed his love his sacrifice his victory for sinners like us our king died for us our king gave himself for us it was a cross destined and designed for a king so jesus wants to set his disciples expectations rightly to show them his path is going through a cross the king would have a cross But he also wanted them to understand that they would have a cross. So that's what we see in the second part, our cross. Let me read again verses 34 and 35. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So now Jesus turns and gives his disciples a sober warning. If they would follow after him, they must follow him to the cross. His death 
would set the pattern for their life. If you're a Christian, this is true for you as well. The cross of Christ sets the pattern, the path of our life. His death is a pattern for our living. Jesus confronts here a great falsehood that existed then and exists now, that you can follow after Christ but still live for yourself. I can claim Christ as my Savior, but spend all my time and energy and passions on myself. I spend my money for myself. I use other people for myself. In every way, I retain my own king, myself as king in my own kingdom. But Jesus says there are three things required of his disciples. In verse 34, do you see those three things? Verse 34, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus says his disciples must deny themselves. They must deny themselves. Jesus confronts our self-centered desires. A common mantra of the modern society is, follow your heart. It's in Disney movies, it's on billboards, it's on advertisements. Follow your heart. Whatever your heart tells you, just examine what's in the center of your heart and then go after that. That's, that's what the fulfillment of life is about. But Jesus is saying that we must not be controlled by our desires. But we must bring all of our desires into submission to God. This is really a, a fundamental to what is Christian conversion. It's fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. The natural state of mankind is living for self. The non-Christian can simply ask, what do I want? And then go for it. But being a follower of Christ is different. It means dying to self, denying our desires, denying our fleshly desires. You see, the flesh, ourselves apart from the grace of God, our flesh makes every decision only with reference to self. Take an example. Uh, I think many of you know Ikea. They put a new Ikea very close to where we live. It's a, a place you can have simple lunch. And one of, the, one of the key attractions in Ikea is ice cream for one dirham. Maybe you've made the same decision I have, which is to take that ice cream for one dirham. It's a small decision. Your stomach says, I'm hungry. I would like to eat ice cream. My mind thinks I have one dirham. I can spend one dirham. And so I make the decision and I say, go for it. I'm going to eat the ice cream. But making decisions as a Christian are more complicated. Making decisions are more complicated than simply thinking according to our flesh. Our choices cannot be just defined by our desires. We're called to deny ourselves and submit everything to God. So think then back about Ikea's ice cream. A Christian should ask some other questions. Can I be a good steward of my body and eat this thing? Is spending one dirham of my money good stewardship? Can I receive it with thankfulness and joy and praise God for it? And many times the answer might be the same and say, yes, I can enjoy ice cream to the glory of God, spend one dirham and, and be thankful to God. But other decisions might require much more self-denial. Questions the world asks, like, should I remain married to my spouse when marriage is difficult? There's a musician in my home country who said this in a recent interview. She was explaining why she was getting divorced from her husband. And she said that she noticed, quote, 
that all the glitter from the relationship was gone and it wasn't coming back. So her description of why she was going to get divorced was the butterflies, the, feel, the feelings, the emotions of the relationship had faded away. And so if those weren't there, then I better just leave too. And if your only guide in life is to follow your heart, if your only guide in life is to follow your desires, then following the glitter, following into divorce, might be a rational decision. But Jesus teaches his disciples, you must deny yourself. So Christian marriage is not shaped by follow your heart. Christian marriage is shaped by the cross of Christ. Christian marriage must fundamentally be a cross-bearing relationship. It's about selfless, self-sacrificial love for your spouse. Think about another example of the choices we make as believers, about the choices of entertainment. The world can ask, is this entertaining? Is this high quality? Is it going to be funny? Is it going to make me laugh? But Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me. So the Christian, the Christian can't just live with these questions. The Christian must ask, does filling my mind with these things please my heavenly Father? Does taking these things in help me love what God loves and help me hate what God hates? Or does it make me long for the things of the world? If it's exciting to my eyes, it's exciting to my lust, but it grieves the Holy Spirit, then following after Jesus means finding something else to put my eyes and my attention on. Jesus says we must deny ourselves. And it really shapes every area of the Christian life. How we think about money. Is my money about getting what I want, or is my money about glorifying God and serving others? Am I denying myself with my money, investing simply on treasures on earth, or am I investing myself in treasures in heaven? It affects the way we think about children. As a Christian, having children is not simply about fulfilling the dream of my life as an adult. Raising children as a Christian must be about self-sacrificial service to this little one made in the image of God. It changes the way we think about work. The world and the flesh can say that your work, your career, is about maximizing your potential. It's about fulfilling your dreams. And the Christian approach to work is about denying myself and being a good steward of all that God has entrusted to me, using the skills and talents God has given me to love Him and to serve others. Christian, Jesus says here, the Christian life is a life called to self-denial. And if you call yourself a Christian... But see that your life is characterized by self-gratification, by only pursuing and fulfilling your own desires. My friend, Jesus says, you are self-deceived. He says, if anyone would follow after me, he must deny himself. The world teaches us that the only reliable guidepost for your life is to follow your heart, follow your desires. But Jesus says, follow me and deny yourself. And Jesus gives another command. He says, his disciples must take up a cross. We know the Roman cross was a a clear symbol of suffering and death. Now we celebrate it, we put it up maybe in our churches, sometimes we wear it on a t-shirt or on a necklace or something like this. At the time, it was a torture device. It was a Roman torture device. Jesus clearly does not mean that each disciple must go to a cross, 
must be hung on a cross. By his cross, salvation is accomplished. By his death, our forgiveness is won. Sins are finally and eternally forgiven because of his cross, not because of our cross. Us dying on a cross would accomplish nothing. Us suffering in this life accomplishes nothing for our redemption, our justification. Jesus is not saying that. He's saying that following after him would mean willingly accepting the trials of discipleship. Us taking up a cross means we're willingly accepting the trials of discipleship. For Jesus, the cross was a place of suffering and sacrifice. And Jesus says for his disciples, the path of discipleship would be marked by suffering and by sacrifice. Another German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, says in his book called The Cost of Discipleship, he says, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is the radical path of Christian discipleship, self-denial and dying with Christ. And this is not just a, a path made for exalted Christians, for pastors, for those who have podcasts or something like that. This is the path of all disciples. Again, do you see what Jesus says? If anyone would come after me, if anyone would take the name of Christian, if anyone would follow after him and, and put their hope and trust in him, this path is for every Christian. Self-denial, suffering and sacrifice. This is the path of all disciples of Christ. All disciples of Jesus must die to themselves and they're following after him. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Galatians 2, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. His death is our death. His cross is our cross. His resurrection life sets the pattern for our resurrection life. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. So Jesus explains to his disciples that he will have a cross. Jesus explains to his disciples that they will have a cross. And finally, he wants them to count the cost rightly. He wants them to count the cost rightly. I don't know if you remember the story of WeWork. WeWork was a corporation, a business, an American company that hosted co-working spaces. Co-working spaces, their corporate mission was some meaningless corporate jargon. They said their mission was to elevate the world's consciousness, whatever that means. In January 2019, so just four years ago, the estimated value of the company was $47 billion. $47 billion. One investment bank, SoftBank, invested $10 billion into it to help continue it on because at the time it was losing billions of dollars every year. They were expecting that they were worth a lot and that someday this was all going to pay off. They pursued being added to the New York Stock Exchange and then to be scrutinized by regulators and all kinds of investors. And when that happened, the valuation of WeWork went from $47 billion to $9 billion. And they said, never mind, we'll come back later. The CEO resigned. Two years later, they did join the New York Stock Exchange at one-fifth that original valuation. You can go now buy a share of uh, WeWork stock on the New York Stock Exchange, if you like, and the value of that share right now, each individual shares about one dirham. It's about 25 U.S. cents. 
the value of the company had gone from, it, it had lost over 99.5% of its valuation. What once seemed to be such an impressive value, such immense worth, was now proven to be worthless. The question is, can the same happen with a life? Can we have the same misevaluation of our own lives, of your life? Can we miss the mark so badly to put the value in the wrong places? We can be misguided about our investments, and it has some impact on our life, but Jesus says you could be misguided about evaluating the most important things about the value of a life. In the final verses of our passage, Jesus is helping correct his disciples' wrong valuations of the fundamental value of their life. And he tells us this morning that following him will cost everything, but that it will be worth it. Following after him will cost everything, but it will be worth it. Let's read one more time, verses 36 to 38. Jesus says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus says here, what looks like loss to the world is the only path to eternal life. He's warning them about a half-hearted allegiance. He's warning them about a half-hearted discipleship. Lips that say, yeah, he's my savior, but a heart that says, I'm fundamentally committed to myself. Hearts that say, yes, I will follow Jesus, but lives that display, I'll be committed to my addictions. Lips that say, I will follow after Jesus, but a heart that says, I'll never leave this relationship. A heart that says, yes, I will follow Jesus, but a lifestyle of Monday through Friday that says, I'll do anything to advance my career. Harm anyone, lie to anyone, take anything to advance my career. Mark's gospel gives us an example of the very thing that is probably it is displayed, put on bright display for us just in one page in your Bible. In Mark chapter 10, do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler comes just after this story on the next page of your Bible probably. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, I followed all of God's laws from my youth. I've done everything that God requires. And I'm simply asking now, what, what's left? For me to inherit eternal life. And do you remember what Jesus says? Mark chapter 10, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus confronts the man in the one place that Jesus knows that he is unwilling to die to self. He is unwilling to die to Jesus in terms of his money and his wealth. He'll give up everything, he'll do anything, but there's one, one idol that he's retained in his life that corrupts his whole discipleship. He'll give his whole life to God, but not his money. And the man leaves sad. He knows he's been exposed. He desires eternal life, at least he says so, 
But he's unwilling to deny himself and take up his cross and follow Christ. Jesus gives these warnings to his disciples, and he gives these warnings to us. He recounts the story of the rich young ruler because he knows that we're tempted by a half-hearted discipleship. He asks these rhetorical questions. What does it profit to gain the whole world and to forfeit one's soul? The answer, of course, is a resounding nothing. Nothing is worth that. It would be meaningless. What is the rich ruler, rich ruler, rich young ruler gained by retaining his wealth for a few days, a few years, and yet to forfeit his soul? He's gained nothing. He's giving up something priceless, eternal life with God, forgiveness of his sins, to reign in Jesus with his kingdom, to have an inheritance given by the king, and yet he's held on to this pittance of a wealth he had in this, in this life. He's given up something priceless to keep something that moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. And Jesus warns his disciples and he warns us, don't trade life's pleasures for the promise of eternal life. Following Christ, being his disciple, requires an undivided allegiance to the Savior. An undivided allegiance to the Savior. Christian, you should evaluate your own life and ask, is there any place in my life that I'm unwilling to submit to God? Is there any evidence of some part of my life, of some sin or pattern of life that I'm unwilling to turn over to Christ? Is there some place that I've not repented of? You should be concerned that you might be self-deceived. If you're retaining places in your life of unrepentant sin, your lips may say you follow after him, but yet you retain and hold on to patterns of sin. Every Christian sins. We all have to repent. But the Christian discipleship is for repenting sinners. People who, when they're confronted with their sin and their idolatries, they turn from them. We confess them. We repent from them. And Jesus makes one more point to his disciples. He says that following after him invites shame and ridicule. Following after Christ invites shame and ridicule. In some circles, it might be that following after Christ is a place of honor, a place of reputation. People might notice that you go to church and they might think highly of you. That's true in some circles. Our feelings of shame are subjective. Our feelings of shame are subjective. It's an internal experience of something we feel. Sometimes, maybe oftentimes, our shame can be placed in the wrong places. Sometimes we don't feel shame for things that are shameful. Movies and songs that make light of things that God hates. And we make light of them. We make light of things that we should feel ashamed about. Sometimes the world even gives honor and glory to people who are doing things that are shameful, sinful actions, and the world celebrates them, things that they should be ashamed about. And sometimes we might be made to feel ashamed of things that are actually good. Like when the world criticizes Christians for moral principles that are puritanical and backwards and old-fashioned, old but things that God is pleased with. Christian, we should not be ashamed of following after God's good laws, even if the world criticizes them and, and insults them. That's the situation Jesus is warning them about. He says that the surrounding world is filled with an adulterous and sinful generation of people who should feel ashamed 
for the way that they're living, but instead, they intend to make the disciples feel ashamed. They're going to make them feel ashamed about following the Son of Man, about following the Messiah. Jesus is preparing his disciples to have right expectations, to be prepared about the trouble that lies ahead. Peter eagerly proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, promises he will never waver in his allegiance to the Lord. And maybe that's easy to do when all the disciples are around you and you're there standing on the, on the mountaintop with Jesus, expecting that he will soon take his throne and that you may have a seat right behind him, behind him on his throne. But do you remember where the story of Mark's gospel goes in Peter and his discipleship? It also goes through chapter 14. In chapter 14, Jesus is now no longer approaching a throne. He's now on trial. He's standing before a council, and Peter is confronted in the courtyard by a servant girl who says, you were following after this Jesus, right? You're one of his disciples, right? Three times he's confronted if he's a follower of Christ, and three times he denies his Savior. Realizing his disloyalty, realizing his half-hearted discipleship, Peter breaks down and weeps. His resolve to never be ashamed of Christ has led to a dramatic failure. Maybe our failures in following after Christ, our allegiance to Christ has not been so dramatic But we might know of evidences of places where we have failed, failed to speak up in the workplace, failed to stand for what's right in the family, failed to speak and share the gospel when there's a perfect opportunity, but something inside ourselves makes us hold back. And yet, Peter's story gives us an example of our story as well. Jesus was crucified, as he told them he would be. He was laid in the grave. And on the third day, the disciples came to the tomb, and they found it empty, just as he said. And this is what the angel says in Mark chapter 16, verse 6. Mark chapter 16, verse 6, the disciples have approached the the grave, the empty tomb. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Peter gets a second chance. Peter is invited back into Christ. He's welcomed. Jesus knew of his failure and invites him to walk in repentance and wholehearted allegiance to Christ. Of course, that becomes evident in the book of Acts. Peter is now preaching on the stage, facing persecution, shame, imprisonment, all kinds of danger, and his wholehearted allegiance to Jesus has now been displayed and made clear, but it went through a path of real failure and repentance and shame. Brother and sister, how is your discipleship to Jesus going? How is your discipleship going? What did you expect when you first began to follow after him? Did you, did you expect it would be a constant string of victories and success? Did you think it would be filled with praise and respect from the world? Jesus teaches his disciples, he teaches us this morning, following him is costly and following him is worth it.
We must expect trials, persecution. We should expect costly choices. We should expect painful self-denial. And all these things are fitting for disciples who follow in the path of a Savior who went to the cross. Our King Jesus went to the cross, and He calls us to bear our cross of discipleship, and He tells us that it's worth it. Following a crucified Savior is difficult. A life of self-denying, cross-bearing, daily dying to self is only made possible by the grace of God, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Our Savior wants us to set right expectations. Let us deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him so we can be found faithful on the last day. Let's pray for God's help. Father, we thank you for this correction from the mouth of Jesus himself. Father, we thank you for his cross, that he did not avoid the shame and loss and death of the cross, but instead eagerly pursued it so that he might win for himself a people, our forgiveness, our salvation. And Father, he will be exalted and glorified for all time because of it. Father, we pray that you would give us a complete resolve to follow after Christ, to avoid sin, to despise the shame of the world, but yet to hope in the salvation that comes through Christ alone. Father, help us walk faithfully in this life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.